On this super episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 45 and 46 from 1981. Preston Neal Jones, the author of Return to Tomorrow, the filming of Star Trek The Motion Picture, reports on what it was like to be on the TMP set. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss Star Trek fan letters. William Barton gives us the details about the motion picture model kits that were available in the early 80s. Anthony Leppard and Gregory Franklin reminisce about Alan Asherman's Star Trek Compendium. Plus, the 3D modular construction kit. And more on this episode of... Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, baby doll. Hey, puddin'. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending the Music City Multicon October 28th through 30th right here in Middle Tennessee. One of our favorite conventions because of the fact that there's so many video games there, even though it's has multiple contents of various genres, the Open Space Arcade is a sight to behold. They have a huge arcade and lots of gaming, and we even presented a panel last year. About Star Trek. That's right, because they're trying to expand to different uh, to different TV shows. Also, ShadowCon, Memphis, Tennessee, January 6th through 8th. Another convention that's focused in primarily on the SCA but they still do have gaming there, and they welcome Star Trek content. They do. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a fan-run convention, and we did Star Trek panels last year, or a couple of years ago. Starlog Magazine, issue number 45. Cover date, April 1981. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Shuttle still go for test launch. As 1980 drew to a close, the Space Shuttle Columbia was being prepared for rollout to launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The rollout is the final phase of pre-launch preparation for the first flight of the Columbia. Amazing. The first shuttle was named Enterprise, the second one Columbia. And being fans of Star Trek Enterprise TV series, what's the sister ship to the Enterprise? The Columbia. Fantastic. Love it how Star Trek taps into real-world space exploration. Hi, this is Bob Turner with 70s Trek, and 
the unofficial Trek podcast. And I'm here with Kelly Casto. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Bob. How are you? I am hunky dory. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Today we're talking about issue number 45 of Starlog Magazine, way back in April 1981. Wow. Yeah. Is that crazy or what? Yeah, we were old back then. Yeah. (laughs) This issue has a big picture of Hawk, the character who was in the second season of Buck Rogers. Right, played by uh, Tom Christopher, and he's in his his black suit with his feather wig. <laughs> do you have thoughts on Hawk Kelly? I, I know this I, has nothing to do with what we are yeah. eventually going to talk about, but right. what the heck? Come on, I when I was a kid, I thought Hawk was super cool, <laughs> and forget his costume, and you know he's a Birdman or whatever um, that I don't think he flew. Um, <laughs> only in his I, really well, cool spaceship, though. Right? Only in he his really that. cool spaceship. Yeah. So, so that was the redeeming value there. Yep. And and in the article, or, or I should say, in this issue, there is an article about Tom Christopher. A wingless hawk flies high on the new Buck Rogers, and he's there with a um, a lady must be his wife or his girl who also has a feather wig, which yes. instantly identifies them as bird people, I guess. I guess. Do you think that was warm? I, I bet that thing was hot to wear. It, it probably was. There's also the Star Trek lives in fans letters, the fanzine by B. Joe Trimble. Yes. Lots do you want to start of, us off and talk about a couple of letters? Yeah, let's um let's do that. So this article or this version of fan scene is I think I counted ten um fan letters and B. Joe responds to them. So mm-hmm. in the first letter, the fan says, Hey, can I get film clips and scripts and posters and other Star Trek things? <laughs> and um, and also, Hey, I'm building a Vulcan harp. Do you have any information on what it's officially called the size and the strings used? Uh, yeah. I, B. Joe has all of the information, but she says, she of course responds, Hey, get, get your Star Trek things from the annual Starlog sci-fi uh, merchandise guide, or you can go to convention dealer room and buy the stuff. So hold on a second, Cal. Did you know that there was an annual Starlog science fiction merchandise guide? <laughs> I actually did. Yes. Did you really? I had yes. no idea. I read that in there and I'm like, oh my God, I would have loved to have had that. Yes. I All I remember time. is looking at it and like, I can't afford that. I can't afford that. I want that, but I can't afford that. <laughs> but I need that, and I need this, and I need one of those. Oh, I need two of those. Yes. Yes, right? So for the Vulcan harp, she tries her best to answer the question. She says, hey, it's a prop. It didn't really play, so don't know about the strings. And, uh, you know, f- from the script, they refer to it as a lyre, a Vulcan lyre. But in some 
fan communities, they called it a leatherette or a lyrette, depending on which fanzine you were reading. Um, and that it was about the size of an Irish harp. So you can use Irish harp, replicate it, and make appropriate Vulcan adjustments. There you go. So very, very good job, Pichu. <laughs> in the second letter in this section, someone from Columbia, South America, writes about how Star Trek was special to her or him. Uh, quote, this show says these things to me and more, and, and that is why I find Star Trek so refreshing and stimulating, unquote. And Bijo responds with an interesting, um, an interesting statement. She says, quote, your own enthusiasm is not unusual. So don't let effectively blase people try to make you feel stupid about your optimism, unquote. I thought that was wonderful. She was getting yeah. right to the heart of of the idea of Trekkies, right? Trekkie being the name given to these geeks by these other sci-fi folks. And yeah. basically, don't let yourself be called a geek. Don't let, yeah, but, you know, don't let them dampen your fun. Do you, do you think this person from Columbia, South America knew what blase meant, though? <laughs> well, I had to go look it up myself, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're up with the next one. All right. So B. Joe calls this fan collector. And it's a 10-year-old boy. It's a 10-year-old. And I don't know if it's boy or girl, so sorry. Um, and he asks her, can you send me a Star Trek communicator? Well, B. Joe, I think she put this letter in. Just to stop getting the fan- requests. <laughs> yeah, getting requests. So, you know, I think she was a little harsh for a 10 year old boy, but I don't think that's who she was talking to. I, I think um, you might be right. So she essentially says, hey, all these props have long, long ago been distributed either to a museum or private collectors. And the studios really know the value of these props. And they're not just giving them away. So don't, don't ask. And don't ask me. Me, Joe. Right, right. It's 12 years later, kid. <laughs> right. I mean, basically, the only thing she doesn't say is, oh, God, grow up and use your brain. There's right. nothing for you here. I, I, I definitely thought that she was a little irritated in her response. Yeah, she definitely was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next letter here, letter number four is... Um, some kid, I'm guessing, is writing B. Joe about how he or her and their friends pretend to be mixed race aliens. And I'm guessing they're playing Star Trek or what have you. And, and then asks why someone doesn't update the technical manual. And B. Joe <laughs> has some comments about them playing and their creativity. And she was pretty nice here. And then she goes on to say that updating the technical manual would be up to its author, Franz Joseph. <laughs> Shut that conversation down yep. really quick. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting letter. It was. About all of the aliens and now I'm yeah. mixed Kazenti with 
Right. I, I didn't even try Vulcan to put it in my notes because I know it was, it was too like, much that hurt my head. It, it was, yes, it was too much. It was a lot of stuff. Um, let me put it to you this way. If people have a negative connotation about Star Trek fans, cause they're a little geeky, this letter didn't help. No, no, I'll leave but it at I, that. I thought it was a very good, um, analogy to, to our lives today where, you know, I, people are trying to, to, you know, identify with themselves and it sounds oh. like the very same thing here that, you know, Hey, I'm having trouble identifying with myself. I'm going to help me and my friends are going to, you know, try to come up with a way to identify ourselves. Wow. You went all deep on me there. I, I did not go there. So uh, kudos to you, sir. Yeah. I don't, maybe that was just one too many alcoholic beverages. <laughs> um, all right. I'll let you take on the next letter. <laughs> yes. So she calls this fan enterprise or labels it enterprise. And so the person writes basically as a kid, I dreamed of a spaceship and a tall, dark haired, pointed eared man. And now my dreams have been, my dreams have been realized on TV. In other words, Spock. Um, and that Star Trek saved my life. I contemplated suicide because I had no friends. And now because of Star Trek uh, and diving head deep into Star Trek, she has a whole new bunch of friends and even more so this group of fans um, and friends uh, have encouraged her to even lead the largest Star Trek fan club in her area or her or his area. So B. Joe is very, um, very good with this letter. You know, Hey, you know, I'm glad you're, you know, you found um, a path and had friends and that's what this fandom community is about. And, uh, you know, kudos to you for digging yourself out of a dark place and, um, you know, making your way to a better life and a happier life. Yeah. I, I was um, struck by how B. Joe can move from irritation to, to some really touching sensitivity. Uh, she says here, quote, the world is full of people who would like to be friends, but are, who are too shy to reach out or too afraid to ask for friendship look yes. about you and help save someone else from such dark despair. Um, th that's wonderful. That's yes. great advice. And it's, it's right on the money. So uh, kudos to B. Joe. Yes. And B. Joe even goes on and says that she also had a character as a child. That was a seven foot tall lady with red hair that reached the floor. And she's currently writing her into a story. She's working. On. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. I, I meant to look up if she actually published that story, but interesting. I didn't do it either. You're right. We should have. Yeah. Uh, let me go to the next letter. Letter six. It's basically someone asking for a copy of the Star Trek concordance that B. Joe Trimble wrote. And B. Joe says, I don't have any. So then I'm, I'm going to move on to the next letter. Letter seven. <laughs> and the writer asks if Star Trek will ever return, presumably to television. And B. Joe says, and I was, I'm going to quote her here, 
quote, Star Trek will probably never return to TV <laughs> in a one hour each week format, unquote. BJ, I love you. I think you got this one wrong. <laughs> but she doesn't have a crystal ball. Come on. No, no crystal ball. And she's only working off of the rumors of the day, right? And I get that. There were a lot of different rumors, and she talks about some of them of maybe Star Trek returning for a movie of the week every couple of months or things that we also heard um, uh, around Phase 2, all of the different formats that Phase 2 could be offered up. There were probably some similar rumors about Star Trek after the motion picture and how it could possibly return. She goes on to say, and this is where I got very interested. She goes on to say that that Star Trek is in um, a state of limbo since nobody is sure how or what form it will take. And Gene Roddenberry has been moved to offices that are off the Paramount lot. Now, we know sitting here in, in 2022 that Roddenberry was removed from active production duties after the motion picture and that um, a whole nother creative team came in and started plotting Star Trek's um, return. And, and um, of course that was Star Trek to the wrath of Khan, but Roddenberry really wasn't involved in the creative end of that. And so yeah. I think this is, this was a clue of what was coming yes. in 1981. Yeah. And she finishes that by saying, don't write any letters to Paramount or Gene because it won't do you any good. They're not going to get it. It's just going to go in the garbage. There you go. But write the White House to support the space program. (laughs) She pushed that a couple times in in this article, which was Um, good. Yes, that's right. That's right. She does talk about that. Yes. Because, again, this was before – before the shuttle had flown. Yeah. Gosh, it's so, and here we are living in a day and time when there are no more shuttles flying. Right. Wow. Crazy. But when you read private sector doing it. Okay. Yes, yes, exactly. Why don't you read the next one? All right. The next letter letter is called traveler. And this individual says they recently returned from American Samoa after for being there for four years and says that Star Trek is one of the favorite shows there. And that's saying something since they really only have TV on the air from 4 PM to 10 PM every day. So Star Trek being so popular is, you know, a huge deal. Um, so B. Joe just responds that Paramount syndicated in many countries and made available to U.S. armed forces and their families and U.S. Uh, based businesses in other countries. So, but I yep. thought that was very interesting that not, not only they only had TV in 1981 from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Oh, I know. I read that too. I was real surprised. Yeah. Third world country, I guess. That's yeah, true. all they could do. Yeah. The, uh, the next letter is, uh, from a fan who, um, calls him or herself real fan. That's why I know (laughs) they were a fan basically asking, uh, Hey, what's Matt Jeffries doing? I loved his work on the enterprise and B Joe responds. Hey, 
Matt is the set designer over at Little House on the Prairie, and she gives the address <laughs> of the show where where real fan could write a letter and go bug Matt instead. Yeah. And uh, then she goes on to say when he's not working on the set, he's painting um, painting pictures or, or portraits of vintage airplanes. And, yeah. and apparently he has had several showings of those. I've I've actually gone out looking for a Matt Jeffries painting of some of the World War II aircraft that he painted. I can't find them. No, not I even a print. Not even a print. I thought it would be a cool thing to have. Yeah, so, it'd, be, it'd be cool if it was like a published book or something. Yes. So if anybody comes across anything out there in podcast land, please let us know. Yeah, please. Yeah. Why don't you take the last one? All right. The last one is to Sincere. The fan is Sincere. Um, and this fan is says, hey, Bejo, I want to send you a Star Trek script that me and my friend have worked on. and." I want you to read it, and if you think it's worthy, can you get it published, or can you get send it to the studio? Um, I can't get anybody at the studio or Star Trek to respond. Bijo, uh, and this is very interesting. She says the reason Paramount sends scripts back unopened uh, is that they're worried about plagiarism. And plagiarism lawsuits. So if they if they open the package and read it, and then part of it shows up in a show somewhere, you know, whoever sent that in can go, hey, I, you know, that's my work. You're plagiarizing me. Mm. And even cites an example where David Gerald was threatened with a lawsuit from someone who claimed that basically <laughs> Tribbles was their idea because they sent they sent a script to him or the studio. Now what that person failed to realize was that it takes months for a TV show to get, you know, basically from, from concept to, to finish yeah. production. It takes a long time. Right. And by the time they got the script, uh, that this person's script that trouble with tribbles was already in the can and the the claimant had no uh, ground to stand on. No. And then, I... then Bijo says, and for this same reason, since I also write, I can't read your work either. Makes sense. It does. It makes total sense. Yep. I um it's it's fun reading these letters and and I had a couple of takeaways and we've talked about these in in past episodes um you know with the starpod log folks but i i came up with these three first my first takeaway is people were a little more naive in 1981 than we remember and certainly more naive than we are today certainly. you know generally right yep just didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes at at that time and that's okay you know you can go on to YouTube today and you can look at, you know, scores of behind the scenes um, videos or documentaries about TV shows or movies being made. But at this time, there wasn't any of that. No, there were fanzines, which you wait months for them to get published that will have information. Right. 
Right. My my second takeaway here was the world was a little more primitive in 1981 <laughs> than I remember. I mean, if you think about, you know, you've got people, how do I get a hold of this? Well, you have to go find a copy of this catalog or wait for your next convention, which could be, you know, 10 months away and then go to the dealer table. How do I get a hold of Matt Jeffries? Well, you have to write a letter here. I mean, when you yes, we lived through it. So we know it. We understand that it was this way. But boy, you, you kind of tend to forget, don't you? Yeah. You take it for granted what we have today, don't we? You really do. Really do. Because we, you know, you and I, we've jumped on Facebook. We found Doug Drexler and we sent him a DM. Yeah. And we're in conversations with him. It was just that simple. So yeah, it was definitely a different world. And then my last takeaway is this, these letters, right? The letter pages in Starlog. This was our version of social media in 1981. Yeah, or blog. Or, or, or yeah, a mini blog, right? You're, yeah. you're bouncing ideas off of other people. You're making posts. You're getting responses. So, yeah. yeah this was a way of being social. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's nice of you. I appreciate that. Don't get used to it. Well... You know, when I get them from you, I know it's rare. Okay. Um, any closing thoughts? Um, n- no, I mean, in I guess one thing is that B, B. Joe does a great job answering most of these questions. Sometimes they come off a little rough. Um, but like I said about with the 10-year-old, I think she's trying to send a message. Yeah. And and we're we're having fun and poking fun at B. Joe for some of her responses, but I love reading these and I'm sure you do too. Yes, I do too. It's a, a literally a blast from the past. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Ronberry once said, perhaps one of the primary features of Star Trek that made it different from other shows was it believed that humans are improving they will vastly improve in the 23rd century. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Fuse Blocks, a 3D modular construction kit. All right, now some of our listeners are wondering, what is this, a 3D modular construction kit? So what it is, I'm going to let you describe it, because you've been holding on to this for 40 plus years. So this issue came with um, this this article about these blocks that you can put together and, and make these cool designs and and um and there was even a pattern in this issue that you could tear out. It's it's this construction paper and it actually it's marked with instructions to tell you how to fold it and how to glue it to make your own uh, what they called a tripodal monad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you had this issue when it came out. Yes. And when you got this insert, what did you do with it? Um, I, I made the little thing. It's, it's really cute. It's got the, uh, you know, it's three, how would you say it? Three modules and one in the middle. So it's kind of like a, like a molecule, as you would think. It looks like Dungeons and Dragons D20 dice connected together, but it's much larger and it's made of construction paper. Yes, it's it's neat looking and it's purple and pink. <laughs> they made it with the bright colors and everything. 
So when I was dating you, and we already discussed that we were both Starlog fans, it, this was an understatement to say that you were a Starlog fan. Because when I went to your house, on your bookcase, you had the original 3D modular that you constructed back in 1981. You still have it to this day. Yeah, I do. I kept it all these years. <laughs> Um, because, because, you know, I've, I've moved several times in my life, so a lot of things I didn't keep. But this one, um, yeah, I just happened to keep during all the times I've moved to different places. And when I picked it up and I said, what's this? You looked up at me quizzically and said, it's from Starlog. Like, what a foolish question. <laughs> <laughs> what about this made you keep it all this time? I just thought it was something neat looking. It was um, something interesting to have. And, and because it's... Childhood memories, you know, something that goes back so long ago. And it's even faded, too. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's just something that I always loved. And that's one of the unique things about Starlog magazine. It wasn't just reading, but every once in a while, Starlog would insert something really cool, like a prize or a toy or a record or something. Yeah, they would have these things in it every once in a while that were really neat. This is Rick Sternback, and you are listening to the StarPod Track, podcast that celebrates Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. So my name is William Barton. I'm originally from a little town in New Jersey called Westfield. Grew up there, born and raised. I got into modeling because of my father. Uh, my father was the generation that actually got to see Star Trek on the airwaves for the first time. So as a modeler, he sort of cut his teeth on the old TOS Enterprise and the original, you know, Klingon battlecruiser and the Romulan bird of prey and such. And of course, being a sci-fi fantasy nerd and a model builder, he passed both of those bugs onto me and I sort of picked up the mantle where he left off. But we're going to talk a little bit, I guess, about the AMT ad, the old AMT ad that used to be in the back of many of the comic books uh, of the time. Uh, for those Star Trek models that were available during that time frame. This was, of course, after the motion picture had come out and Star Trek had sort of revitalized itself. And initially the, the motion picture was sort of regarded as like this flop, not necessarily because it was bad, but because it was competing directly with Star Wars at the time. And it you know, had a sort of a different pacing and whatnot. But it did pave the way for everything that we have now in regards to Star Trek and the modeling side of that is no different. So there was this ad that was run, and I actually remember the Star Trek cartoons, or not cartoons, I should say, but comic books that were out around the time frame. There were the Star Trek comic books that were uh, both sort of TOS and motion picture era. But then there was also a, a comic strip that was uh, published on Sundays in like the Star Ledger or the Sunday Morning Post or something like that. But in the actual comic books, AMT was regularly running an ad that had this beautiful picture of the refitted Enterprise. And it had this caption, the only Star Trek model kits in the universe. And there were four that I can vividly remember. The Vulcan shuttle with the sled, the refitted Enterprise, which was actually the first tooling of the refitted Enterprise in one 537 scale. So people used to call this the smoothie because this was prior to it being re-released uh, where all of that really awful panel lining was put into it that people have a tendency now of just puttying over and fixing. But there was that. There was the uh, Klingon cruiser. 
And then there was Mr. Spock, and it was a Mr. Spock model that had him in the motion picture uniform, you know, with the, the gray onesie type of thing with the boots kind of built into the pants. And those are the four that I can really vividly remember. The one that I do remember the most is obviously the refitted Enterprise. I had both the refitted Enterprise and the Klingon Battlecruiser as a kid. My father had picked them up um, when he used to sort of moonlight uh, at this toy store uh, during weeknights and whatnot to make a little extra money. And he brought home the, the refitted Enterprise. Now, you have to understand this is before, like, you know, well, well before VHS rentals and stuff like that, when the only time that you could see the motion picture was when one of the major networks would go ahead and air it. And my father's father used to work for AT&T, and we had had this old gigantic Betamax, the Betamax's version of the VCR. And my father at some point had recorded the televised version of the motion picture on something like, I think it was six Betamax tapes. I mean, they only had like a half hour runtime or something. So I would regularly burn through these things, and we would have these weekend marathon sessions building models, the Star Trek models, of course. And I really vividly remember what that was like in regards to the feel of the model and such. One five thirty seven scale for a kid was a pretty sizable model. Uh, the saucer diameter was something like 12 and a half inches across. And, you know, when you're like, you know, seven or eight or nine, that's a fairly sizable model. And, uh, you know, I remember being taught how to apply the group, the glue properly so that the the nacelle pylons wouldn't sag. I'm sure those of you who have built this thing, you totally remember that if you put even so much as a dollop extra of glue on it, those pylons were going to sag and that was going to be it. But these were actually the only commercially available Star Trek model kits at the time. And what they did was they created this desire for other Star Trek subjects to be available. So garage kit modeling started uh, taking up the mantle and you started to see people making resin conversion kits for the, the refitted Enterprise to turn it into the Reliant when Wrath of Khan came out. Uh, you started seeing resin Klingon birds of prey and the USS Grissom from Star Trek Three, and then uh, newer subjects when Star Trek The Next Generation first came out. And I kind of knew Star Trek modeling was starting to take off heavy when a magazine called the uh, Intergalactic Trading Company was published. It was for you know, uh, a business that sold, you know, all kinds of science fiction memorabilia, but they had a heavy, heavy Star Trek catalog. And they had resin kits like a 1537th scale USS Excelsior. It was in scale to the refit, and it was made by a company called Lunar Models. And it was massive. <laughs> it was massive for the time. But that's really what what changed when these four models came out. Because now you can see... There's tons of stuff available. If you look at companies like Polar Lights, they're putting out all kinds of incredible subjects. Uh, the 1-1000th USS Voyager is one of their newer kits. The 1-350th USS Grissom. There's just tons of stuff out there available now, and it's directly related to these four models. I really don't think we would have the type of modeling for the Star Trek community that we do have now had it not been for these four. And it's a very large community. When you look at some of the uh, conventions that go on, particularly Wonderfest. I think that's a really good one to highlight because Wonderfest deals primarily with uh, model kits and stuff. There's a lot of Star Trek stuff out there, and you have vendors like Starship Modeler and Cult TV Man and uh, occasionally Federation Models, the big three of what's out there and available online. And they're selling conversion kits that people are making, garage kits of unique Star Trek subjects. I mean... And now, of course, with the advent of 3D printing, 
the modeling side of Star Trek is getting even bigger now because if someone is talented enough to draw something and they're able to convert that STL or to that into an STL file format, I should say, uh, you can print it out on a 3D printer and have, you know, at your hands pretty much any subject regarding Star Trek, any ship, any prop, any whatever that you could possibly desire. Uh, for someone like me who's been modeling for just about 40 years now, it's really cool to see how much is available. Uh, I had a hiatus in modeling for well, probably about 10 years when I first joined the service and up until about my halfway mark because I was gone, I was out to sea all the time. But when I started coming back from deployments, I'd pick up a model kit and I'd put it together and I started seeing Polar Lights. They put out the 1-1000th TOS Enterprise. That was the first kit that I can remember them putting out. might not be their actual first, but it's the first one I can remember. And then the 1-1000th Refit came out. And then we got the Klingon Battlecruiser. And then we got the Romulan Bird of Prey. And if you look at Polar Light's catalog now, it's absolutely huge. There's tons of stuff out there that's available. Um, and much like I said earlier, like, you know, where Star Trek the motion picture revitalized the Star Trek franchise. And now we have all of this content that's available. Those four model kits were really what paved the way and provided for everything that we have now in regards to Star Trek modeling. Now with the new television show, Strange New Worlds out, there's already uh, talk from Polar Lights about modifying the Discovery Enterprise that they originally put out in one one thousand scale to make it more reflective of what it looks like in Strange New Worlds. And for those of you who aren't involved in modeling, that's a huge endeavor that requires new molds, new tooling, uh, significant changes to the existing kit. It's not an easy thing to do, but because of the popularity of Star Trek and, and you know the the modelers being very vocal about what they want, we have the ability now to basically do anything. It's a very very cool time to be a modeler. If you can get a hold of these classic four kits, uh, you know there's a, there's a part of me that wants to tell you to build them, and then there's a part of me that wants to tell you to save them because they are starting to become like hen's teeth. The smoothie refit is still relatively easy to find. The Klingon Battlecruiser is not too hard, but the Mr. Spock and the Vulcan shuttle, they're, they're kind of harder to get to. I've looked for them periodically over the years, but I haven't come up with any luck. But if you can get them, I'm not trying to discourage you from building something, but you know, maybe try to get two so you can build one and have one for nostalgia's sake. Hey, let's talk about the books that were produced in 1981 in conjunction with Star Trek. Death's Angel by Kathleen Skye. This is one of the books that my grandfather had at his house. I would read it as a youth over and over again. This was life beyond, be, before there was the internet or smartphones. Believe it or not, that's what kids would do when they were bored. What, read Star Trek books? The same ones over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> the Entropy Effect by Vonda McIntyre. The Klingon Gambit by Robert E. Vardaman. The Covenant of the Crown by Howard Weinstein. And a reference book, The Star Trek Compendium by Alan Asherman. So two of those books, uh, The Entropy Effect and The Covenant of the Crown, we have reviewed on Ladies Trek Library, which you can find on our YouTube channel. Anything particular out of that list that you love? I mean, I loved all of them, but... I mean, really, The Entropy Effect and The Covenant of the Crown were some of the best Star Trek novels. The Entropy Effect was fantastic. It, 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 it felt like it was a Star Trek show. Yeah, a really good, um, a good story and good characterization. And I remember it gave, yeah, it gave more background on Sulu. Anything that gave more insight on 
other characters outside of Kirk and Spock I always found interesting. Yeah, a little... You know, a little time for Sulu, even though it, it, it's still focused on Spock, but yeah, gi- giving more time to Sulu was, was awesome. And having the new characters that they added in the book was neat too, seeing some of the other security guards and everything. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. The convention scene. Let's break down some of our favorite moments on the Trek track at Dragon Con. For 2022, we presented two panels. One, Starlog magazine and how Star Trek was featured in it. Fantastic support for that one. I mean, there were people coming out of the woodwork expressing how much they loved this panel. Yes, it was um, on the last day of the con on Monday when things are winding down so much. But uh, we had a good turnout and good audience participation. And, and yeah, I, w- I was wondering how many people at DragonCon actually remember Starlog magazine. So apparently a good b- bit. And also we gave... A panel second year in a row about Star Trek fan films. Yes, with different people on the panel this time, and um, that that panel was also well received. So a lot of good talk about about how to make your own fan film. Ray Tessie, the owner of Nutri Zone Studios, as well as Scott Little, who is an actual carpenter from Major Motion Pictures, they were discussing their experiences with Star Trek fan films. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, fan films are sort of like. Our, our fans' own love letter to Star Trek. Very impressed with the turnout of the Star Trek photo shoot. Yeah, it, it was a pretty big turnout. I mean, all that light, because they couldn't all fit on the steps. Um, the, it's always on the steps of the Hilton. Yeah, it was overflowing. And a lot of good uh, creativity. We saw a Horda there and a Horgon. I mean, great, you know, unusual costumes. Plus the regular Starfleet. And we showed up in our Vulcan warriors from Amok Time. Yes, our first time wearing those costumes. And that that was a lot of fun to do, having the Lurpas and and um, being in fight scenes. <laughs> and also, once again, we were in the Star Trek section of the Dragon Con Parade. Thousands and thousands of people show up throughout Atlanta to see Dragon Con come alive on the streets. They they opened it up to the public this time because last year it was just for Dragon Con members to watch it. But this time, yeah, like everybody came out to see it. And the the crowd was just so excited. It it was great fun. That they also had um a new thing that was right outside the the programming room that was called the Emergency Convention Hologram. And it was this interactive box where you get to watch a computer generated doctor from Voyager. And you can actually, you move your arm to, um, to select things on the menu and the doctor talks to you. You know, you like, like you select, uh, what do you like about Star Trek? And the doctor will tell you. And, and there was some other question like, do I have a disease? And the doctor gives you some kind of examination. <laughs> and then the, the funny thing was the, um, you do a dance off with the doctor where he, where he's actually moving his arms like he's dancing and you try to imitate what he's doing. So that, that was a lot of fun. Our friend Peter Stolmeyer put that together. Know the unique aspect of the Trek track room. And, of course, all the, the great guests they had this year. They still had um, Garrett Wong as the as the director, and they had a lot of actors from, from Picard, Discovery, and Strange New Worlds. In fact, we're going to roll things over for some live coverage. All right, so right now we are at Dragon Con, and we are here very late at night in the drum circle. I'm with my friend Calvin, who is a fellow attendee of the Trek Track. I've known Calvin for years. Welcome to your show, Calvin. Hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you for the honor to be on the show. Uh, 
Let me tell. You, explain what the drum circle is, because we're in the middle of this, and it's it's a unique experience in itself. The drum circle is what it what it sounds like. It's a group of drummers form a circle, and they play the hand drum, and you feel the life flow of the earth and the people, the rhythm. It's hard to put in words, but it's amazing. It's a, it's a huge, huge ballroom, and it's, this thing goes to, what, 5 in the morning? Yes, I have seen this thing go to 5 in the morning. I have seen this ballroom packed to where they're telling people it's too many people to come in. I've seen this thing where it ends at 5, and people are running someplace to go to get breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a great it's a great alternative too, if you do, if you're tired of the big crowds, if you're tired of walking around the Marriott and the other hotels, which is great, but it's a great alternative, and, and I think more people should check it out. Really, and we're obviously Star Trek fans, and the yes. Trek track is essentially a con within a con, yes, but is. you get all the extended benefits of bouncing in and out of all the other parties and everything else. What are some of the highlights of the Trek track for you this year? Mm, it's, first of all, it's me, seeing you and your wife again, I, I love seeing the two of you great people. It's You meet the stars, that's one thing, but the individual smaller panels, it always draws me in because Star Trek is it's beyond the show. It's a, it's a phenomenon, it's a culture, it's a way of life. And, and the panels... They're not scared to talk about the controversial stuff of Star Trek. As deep well Treks, right? Deep, 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 like deep Trek. And it's out there. And Star Trek has never shied away from it. And neither does this track. I recommend this track to anyone. I recommend DragCon to anyone. It's, it's an experience. It's a great experience. And Trek, Trek is a great experience. I love the fact that when you talk about you get up close and personal with the celebrities and it's not just the ones that are in front of the screen, but also the creators as well. We just had a long conversation with John Jackson Miller. Yes, yes. The writers, they become accessible. You can pick their brains. You can discuss their books. Yes, you're a thousand percent correct. I agree with you. It's the whole world of Trek. The whole world. Matter of fact, some of the lines for some of the star panels are the longest for the Star Trek actors and actresses. Trust me, I, I see them every Dragon Con. The lines are long. William Shatner comes here every year. That that guy is a trooper. Yes, every year, William Shatner, and Trek brings some of the some of the hottest actors. Let's be real, Dragon Con puts on a great con for what they do. And for some people, it's not everyone's cup of tea. They say it's too big, too commercial, but it's not. I love it. And the Trek track room itself, the bulk of it is decorated by our friend Joe Campbell. Amazing try work. try to describe work. what it's like when you enter the Trek track room to those who have never been here before. It's like entering the bridge of a starship. You can see the wall, the art on the wall that Joe takes time and dedication He's an amazing artist. He's an amazing, amazing guy, and it's like entering the Star Trek world itself. It's comfortable. I always say I've been to creation Star Trek cons. This is better than that. Much better. Trust me. 
and the parade. You're a veteran of the parade. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell our listeners what it's like. This is the only convention I've ever been to that has a, a parade that celebrates all fandom with a special focus on Trek. Yes, it's that's an event itself. I hear estimates of 200,000 fans show up. It brings the flow of Saturday. Saturday is a special day at Dragon Con. The crowd swells, and the parade kicks it off, and it's you get the flow, the ebb, the vibe, and you you get to see the smiles and people face that of characters they recognize, and it's just it's amazing. It's it, you have to get up early, and and it's it can make your day long, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Any particular Trek cosplays that you saw that are outstanding? I would say every cosplay is outstanding. Um, no, I can't pick out one, but every Trek cosplay... We're seeing more and more Orville, I've noticed. Yes, yes. Star Trek Light, yes. <laughs> Which I actually... This season was very, very great. It was a great, great season. And, yeah, I, but it's funny. I believe I've seen more Orville in prior years than before. But, yeah, you're starting to see a lot more of it. This year, I will say you're seeing more of the new Star Trek shows, the Picard uniforms, the the New World, the uh, Strange New Worlds. You're seeing more of that. I'm a traditionist. I love the Enterprise that uniform, which I don't think enough people attempt to wear. I was telling you a few minutes ago, it's not an easy build. It's been a long road. It's a very long road, and we're getting there. We're, Star Trek is getting there. Now... Is is Gene turning around in his grave like William Shatner says? I don't know. He would know better than I. But we're we're heading down a great road, I believe. Always great seeing you, Calvin. When I say oh, I come to Dragon Con, it feels like coming home. Yes. You're one of my dear friends that I I only see once a year. Yes, yes. same thing. You and your wife are good people. It's like when you come to Dragon Con, you're home. You're home and you hate leaving Monday and you and you count or Tuesday or whatever day you leave. There are people leave here Wednesday for some reason. But, <laughs> I but, don't want to go home. I don't want to go home. But <laughs> you start that count that count off from that day and you just for next year. So it's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. And kudos to you, kudos to Trek Track, and kudos to Dragon Con itself. And that's all I gotta say. Live long and prosper. It's small enough to fit on your wrist. But open the secret lid, activate the hidden energy pack, and... Calling Spock! The Star Trek wrist communicator. Nine-volt battery not included. Spock here. What's up, Captain? Enterprise is lost. I need help. Keep talking. I'm zeroing on you. They're coming in loud and clear. Okay, Captain. I've got you spotted. I'm signing off. Star Trek wrist communicators. Two to a set. Enterprise sold separately. By Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 46, cover date May 1981. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Star Trek back on the TV track. It took a 40 million plus movie to do it, but the 12 year old wish of Trekkers around the world is in the early stages of finally being realized. Star Trek will return to television. Okay, it doesn't say there's a rumor or it might. This news article is saying Star Trek will return. In fact, Paramount Pictures is currently developing a two-hour Trek TV film with Harv Bennett, best known for his work on Six Million Dollar Man. Isn't this wild? 
Can you imagine how history would change if we had Star Trek back on TV in 1982 instead of having the Wrath of Khan? Yeah, that's why it's so much fun to go back and, and read these old magazines and you see this. Like, like yeah, like it, it must have been a definite thing at that time that they were really planning to put it back on TV. The decision to make a television movie instead of Star Trek The Motion Picture, the sequel, was obviously based on cost factors. Yet Paramount has admitted that if the TV movie is good enough, it could be released theatrically instead of being broadcast on the tube, as was done with Universal's Buck Rogers pilot. Even if the film is aired, either on a network television or via syndication, it will inevitably be released overseas as a feature film. If the first telefilm is successful, Paramount will produce a series of Star Trek specials. So we're going back to what was happening in the late 70s. The idea of having TV specials, kind of like what they did with The Incredible Hulk and later on Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, but the thing is this so this article is as you read on it does kind of flip and say, well, mm-hmm. it could be it actually could be released as a theatrical movie. But we know that Rathacon was on a much lower budget than the motion picture. It, it was, it was more of a TV budget. Mm-hmm. But but it still turned out to be you know, a much uh better received movie. Leonard Nimoy is the only other actor to publicly comment on his involvement. He told reporters that he would like to do the show, but if they hold to the proposed summer production schedule, he can only make a cameo appearance since he will be on location filming the NBC miniseries Marco Polo. He's an in-demand actor. He was in, He has been consistently working since uh, the closure of the original series. Yeah, but th- so they must have changed the sco- shooting schedule for, for this because he was in Marco Polo. That was a TV miniseries. He did mm-hmm. do that. And actually, I think he... He might not have been in that one as much because he he was, of course, he had a big part in Wrath of Khan. Article goes on to say that all the original actors are being spoken to, but new characters are envisioned as well. These new characters will be younger, preparing for a new generation aboard the Enterprise, according to Gene Roddenberry's aide, Susan Sackett. She told Starlog that Roddenberry's involvement will only be in terms of script and development consultation. Roddenberry's contract with Paramount provided that they must offer Roddenberry the job of executive producer on any Star Trek project. They offered Roddenberry the job, but without creative control, the job usually contains. He refused the offer. So we see, they were trying to push Gene Roddenberry out of the way right after the motion picture. And I think it's because the motion picture went so over budget and because it wasn't um, a big critical or financial success. So they, yeah, yeah, they, they made him take second seat. And, and I was actually kind of, kind of glad to read it at that time because, I mean, because, yeah, I, I had wanted the motion picture to be better. Mm-hmm. Goes on to say that with this new quote unquote movie, Gene wrote a treatment in which the Enterprise crew goes back in time to prevent JFK's assassination. After doing that, Kirk and company return to the 23rd century, only to find that they've altered the future. There is no Federation. The Enterprise returns to the early 60s to let the President's death take place, but the crew learns that they've screwed up the timeline. Oswald isn't there to pull the trigger. Just about the last scene in the story had Spock walking up to Kennedy's limousine and killing him with a phaser. Okay, there's a reason why G needs to step away 
<laughs> yeah, I, I remember reading that, and I was thinking, so, so of course they can't use that script because now, I mean, the whole story's been released here the in whole, Star Wars. It's a giant spoiler. So they know they're not going to use that script. But yeah, it doesn't sound like it would have been a good movie anyway. Even without his current involvement, Paramount already has nine hours worth of Roddenberry-influenced scripts. And we know that's because of Phase 2. Many of the scripts are in various stages of completion. The Savage Syndrome, The Child, Tomorrow and the Stars, Deadlock, Katoomba, Home, Cassandra, Devil's Do. Boy, we see something there that some things that, that we know about already. Yeah, that were used in Next Generation. Season 2, Rider Strike, what do they do? Pull down some old scripts. Does close by saying Paramount is gearing up to do Star Trek once again, but it seems they have done their best to keep the creative control out of the hands of the show's creator. Well, Gene created the show, but a lot of people helped create and produce it along the way. It's a collaborative effort, no yes. doubt about it. Hello, this is Steve Parmer, Fleet Admiral and Commander of Starfleet International, the largest Star Trek fan club in the world. I invite you to join this amazing organization and make friends, have fun, and give back to your communities. In the meantime, please stay tuned to Star Pod Trek, podcast that explores Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Star Trek comic books of the 1960s for this special segment and where we're going to be covering this material that's found in this issue of Starlog magazine. The highlights in relation to Star Trek comic books is my special guest, Alan J. Porter. Alan, you have a background in Star Trek comics going back to the 60s. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this uh, actually where I first discovered Star Trek. Uh, I read about it in the British comics of the 60s before it even aired on the British TV. So that was my first exposure to Star Trek, was in the comics. Isn't that wild? Now, a previous contributor mentioned the same thing coming from the UK. Why is that? Um, it sort of happened both with the TV, with the original series and to an extent with Next Gen. With Next Gen, we actually got stuff out on VHS before it appeared on the TV. It's really strange. I don't know why that is. I think with the comics going back to the 60s, there was a very healthy market of weekly adventure comics that were based on TV shows. Probably most famously, TV 21 was the TV spin-off from all the Jerry Anderson t- shows. So Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, it had its Joe own. 90. Joe 90. It had its own weekly newspaper. And then when Joe 90 started, they started a Joe 90 comic, and we were probably looking for stuff to fill that. And the BBC had got the rights to Star Trek, and even though they hadn't aired it, I guess somehow they knew about it and a deal was done that they would actually do a Star Trek series in Joe 90. But that started in January 1969, but the show didn't actually air on the BBC until July 1969. So there was like six months of Star Trek in the comics before anybody ever actually saw it. Now here in the United States, we had Gold Key Comics, which were absolutely hysterical because they were... Star Trek in name alone, essentially. Uh, yeah, very much. It was the same sort of thing because nobody had seen the shows. So if you actually look at the early British ones, they get things wrong. It's the same thing. You've got flames coming out of the back of their cells. Um, in the you know in the first uh, issue, they're actually known as uh, it's Captain Kurt, not Captain Kirk. Um, it does things like the Enterprise lands on planets. Uh, it goes underwater, um, but, and then you get the very traditional. 
type show, shows where um, people end up they end up teaching aliens how to play soccer or there's what there's one story where Kirk and uh, Spock end up in World War II fighter planes because they have to relive the Battle of Britain because it's a British comic and you have to do the Battle of Britain so there's all the uh, you know and it, it's very much run on like the Royal Air Force type stuff um, in terms of the way that you know they call Kirk Skipper and things <laughs> like that so as you read them um you get a very British sensibility, certainly for the first several uh, few months and the first few years. And then, you know, the Romulans are actually like Roman soldiers. Their, their interpretation of the Romulans is they must be Romans, so they're like Roman centurions with the Roman centurion dress. Um, and again, with it being British, you get lots of animals. One of my favourite ones is where the, the aliens that they fight end up being giant snails, um, which you must be really difficult to run away from giant snails. Um, but a bit like a lot of the early um, gold key ones, you look back on them and think, well, hang on, they just committed, like, genocide, or they just, you know, they just poisoned a whole... To get away, they just poisoned a whole alien race and things like that. They didn't really think about it. So the, the two of them are very um, compatible in, really, people were making up stories based on the fact that all they had was a couple of character descriptions and maybe some black-and-white behind-the-scenes photographs and had never seen the show, and they were trying to sort of extrapolate it. And the, but the key difference between the gold key ones and certainly the early British ones is the artwork, maybe this is a bit biased, but the artwork in the British ones are way, is way better. The, oh, it absolutely is. I will agree because we have the, the reprints of them. And the yeah. British ones are stunning likenesses of, of the actors. They are, and they have very innovative layouts and use yes. of color and design. And a lot of the things that they actually did in that ended up in the show. I mean, things like a captain's yacht was the first time they ever did that was in the British comics. Um, like I say, having the, the Enterprise go underwater, which they ended up doing in one of the Kelvin Timeline movies. Right. As soon as they saw that, I'm like, whoa, you know, <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, and the, the, re, the current reprints, as you said, they're, they're now available in some three very nice, big, hardcover volumes. Um, but for many, many years, you just couldn't get hold of them because there were so many rights and things tied up in them. They hadn't been reprinted pretty much from the 60s until just a few years ago. So it was it Collecting British comics for us is very difficult because of the fact that it's not a Star Trek comic per se. It's only a few pages with, it's almost like 2000 AD. It's, what would they call it, like an anthology series? Or like you're, you're getting a bunch of stories in one comic. So it's, it's hard to get in a complete story. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, that's, that's always been the way with British comics if you go way back to, you know, even the 1800s when sort of broadsheets and stuff. It's always had this... We didn't really call them anthologies. I actually hadn't really heard them called anthologies until I moved to the States. It's just the way comics were. You always... And if you look at British comics today, you mentioned 2000 AD, the humour comics like the Beano and stuff and the Dandy that still sell um, are very... They've always been that format where you get a couple of pages per story... Uh, for each character, so and particularly those TV adaptations, things like TV Twenty One, Valiant, uh, the, the war stories, things like Battle and Victor and stuff. That's they always have had that thing of where you just get a couple of pages per issue of multiple stories, and so that's what I grew up on. I didn't know any different until I saw American comic books, and I'm like, whoa, you get a whole story in one issue. This is cool. But, but I think on the converse, I think it's cool to have a kid with five or six different stories because you're exposed to more. Oh, definitely. Uh, and if there's something you don't quite like, you know, there's probably something in there that you 
you'd enjoy. And they always had that balance of adventure stories, humor stories. Um, some of them had educational things. When I was growing up, my, my, I had a deal with my parents because my dad was a big comics reader. He read The Eagle, which is one of the big science fiction comics in the UK uh, when he was growing up. Um, so he would, when I started, you know, I came along and I was growing up, he was like, yeah, we'll buy you, a, you know, a, a, we'll buy you a couple of comics a week, but one of them has to be an educational comic. So there was a comic called Look and Learn, which actually had um, lots of educational articles and things in it. But it actually, in the middle, had one of the greatest science fiction stories ever told in comics format, a thing called the Trigon Empire, that ran for years and was beautiful. Um, so I was like, I'm getting my science fiction kick, but that also meant I could buy my adventure comic and my humor comic because I was getting my educational comic. So, um, but they all had this sort of great balance to them. And Star Trek was part of that, um, you know. You had the Jerry Anderson universe stuff in Joe Nighty, but you also, I think they also did things like um, The Champions, which was an early non-costume superhero spy show. Um, that was in there, which is one of my favorite shows. You got Joe Nighty, of course, um, and other sort of Anderson-related stuff. And then you had Star Trek. And as that comic merged, what tends to happen in the UK is comic titles tend to come together. They get, they get merged. So TV21 sort of first merged with... Well, Joe Nicey then merged with TV21. And Star Trek was one of the only three strips that, met, uh, that went along with that merger. And then uh, TV21 um, merged into Valiant, which was a more gen- general boys' adventure paper. And the only, tra- only strip that mer- went along with that merger was Star Trek. So Star Trek was actually the only um, strip that actually lived throughout... Um, all of those merges and it lasted across the three titles something like four years um, of these weekly Star Trek uh, adventures um, some of which like I say were wild and wacky Um, but by the time it got to Valiant it had gone down to like one page per week it was a cheaper paper it was a more it it was a more traditional layout you weren't getting more of the the sort of big double page spreads with it with with the different artwork you were getting a more standard layout so it sort of lost some of its luster and it sort of gradually faded away like i say after four years yeah but uh so you would say that this comic book series spurred your love for star trek oh yeah definitely yeah um i will say I, it spurred my love for Star Trek. I enjoyed Star Trek, but Star Trek was like just there. I was never a big Star Trek fan. Like I said, just growing up, it was just like Star Trek was just a thing. It was there. It was part of part of culture. Um, it wasn't really until Next Generation came along um, that I really hooked into and became a Trekkie, if you like. Um, so, which is one of the things that when I wrote the, the book on the history of Star Trek and comics, when the, the publisher reached out to me and he said, do you want to write a book on the history of Star Trek and, uh, comics? I was like, because I'd just done one on James Bond for him. And I was like, eh, it's not really my thing. I'm not that big a Trekkie. And then I sat and I looked around my office <laughs> and there was a, a model of the Enterprise and a Tribble and a communicator badge. And I'm like, yeah, actually, maybe I am a Trekkie. Um, yeah, I'd love to do it. So that actually, doing that... Uh, and going back into the history of Trek really made me appreciate Trek even more by go, diving back into the history and, and doing the book and uh, doing the research, yeah. So let's talk about your book. You literally wrote the book on Star Trek comic books entitled Star Trek, A Comics History. Yeah, um, like I said, the, the, I'd done one on the history of James Bond in comics and the publisher reached out and said, you know, would you like to do the Star Trek one? Um, which was great. So it covers... Um, well, I, my tagline for it is I read 600 Star Trek comics so you don't have to. 
Um, and it, it does literally cover around 600 Star Trek stories um, up to the start of the IDW run. It, it, the book came out just as IDW picked up the, uh, the Star Trek um, license, so it doesn't cover the most... What are they up to now, 400 issues or something? It doesn't cover those 400 issues, but it covers the 600 Star Trek comics prior to that. So everything from the Gold Key, the British stuff, through the, Mar- you know, the Marvel, the Malibu, um, the Paramount pictures, all of those, the newspaper strips, they're all covered. Um, we give plot synopsis for every, every story, um, full credits, publishing history, and then in the back we got um, interviews with various writers and artists who worked on uh, Star Trek comics to give their insight into what it was actually like working on the franchise. Any fun stories that you can share with regards to meeting or finding out information about the creators of these comics? Um, actually, somebody mentioned it yesterday when they were flicking through the book. They were like, wow, you got Will Wheaton, Wheaton to write the foreword. And I was like, well, actually, I didn't. Um, not straight out. I actually interviewed Will Wheaton as part of the... Because he'd just done a comic strip for Tokyo Pop. Um, and as, for their Star Trek manga anthologies that they yeah, did. Yeah. Um, and he, we were at a, con- a convention like this, and he was there. And I was like, sat down and did an interview with him. And then when I played the interview back and was transcribing it, I'm like, this would make a really good forward. <laughs> so I actually, I emailed him and asked him, and he was like, yeah, yeah, fine, you can put my name at the front of the book and stuff. So it was like, okay, good, but uh, yeah. That's awesome. Tell our listeners where they could find this incredible addition to their libraries. Um, you can find it on Amazon uh, or all your favorite digital online um, stores. Uh, yeah, so just if you just search, or you can go to, if you go to my website, alanjporter.com, uh, you can find a link there to all, all my various books as well. So. The Star Trek Compendium by Alan Asherman. With me to talk about this amazing publication that was produced in 1981 are Starfleet International special guests. Uh, this is Commodore Anthony Leopard, and I am off the Bay News Station. And? Uh, my name is Gregory Franklin, Admiral, I'm Commanding Officer, USS Reprisal, Region 1. All right, let's talk about this. Life before the Internet. Before the Internet, if we had questions about Star Trek, the original series, we couldn't just look it up online. We had to have a publication like the Compendium. What was it like for you having the Compendium? Do you remember fond memories of this publication? Oh, I, I loved it. I loved the Compendium. It was, it was your go-to for, for all Trek information. Of course, it was in a day and time previous to today's day and time when you actually had to you know, research something, look it up, look it up by pages, flip the pages, you know, you just couldn't do like a, like a word search like you can now, you know, uh, Picard, you know, you have to actually look for the episode, find the person's name, and then read the episode or any information that it gave you about it. So it was, it was a different time. Uh, For us during that time, it was fantastic publication. It was sort of reminded me like when you were in school when you had to do book reports and you were using world book encyclopedia well that's kind of what that was for us you know uh for trick fans we tried our best to uh it was a cherished copy and there was other bits and pieces of information out there but it was a wonderful resource at that time so so trick fans before this had the B. Joe Trimble publication, which started out as a fan publication, then it had uh, pressing on, on, on the mass market. But this one was just absolutely an amazing reference book because it provided an extensive episode guide. 
And also, it had production and background in information, which was all researched and compiled by the author. I remember when I got mine, I was just pouring over this. I was so excited because I wasn't around for the original series. So it would talk about the original air dates. I used to put myself in the mind of what it was like uh, to be part of that era the of of the 60s and and just getting behind the scenes information was just so incredibly important to me as as I was building up my knowledge in Star Trek fandom. Uh, yeah, the bat behind the scene thing that was very very important. I used to remember, you know, before the with the compendium coming out, I used to remember just I couldn't wait for the next Star Trek episode. I was old enough that it was it was only that time. You never know what that next episode was going to take you because unlike with the new episodes, you know, where one episode led into another, whenever you got finished with that particular episode and you watched it the next week, they was on to something bigger and better at that time. And it was just always, it was always an enjoyment and always just, Excitement, you know, know what I'm saying? Just looking forward to that time every week. And with the compendium, that just like tied everything in because there were so many varied episodes till, and it didn't follow into a storyline till with the compendium, you could go back Mm -hmm. to that previous episode and you could read about that previous episode and research that previous episode. And, and like I said, it was before, it was even before AOL, you know, it was, and I love your in, uh, your, yeah, yeah. your your impersonation yeah, yeah. of AOL. Yeah. Well, having been born in 1970, of course, I had to watch the original series in in syndication. So I'm going to go ahead and admit that I would look ahead and cheat to see what was coming <laughs> next. Um, you know, and I probably shouldn't have done that, but yeah, it was a, it was a really good resource. It did delve into behind the scenes kind of things, and. Um, you know, I I wish I still had my copy. I don't have it after having moved so many times, but I'd give anything to have it back. Did you read the compendium in in concert with other Star Trek reference books? With that one, I so I remember having the Franz Joseph technical manual yeah, as well, and he's like, yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Scott did yeah, Mr. Scott, yeah. Scott's got the Enterprise, yeah. Exactly. It was like there were a certain amount of reference books that were coming out in the early 80s and late 70s. It was like the perfect storm for having Star Trek information in-universe as well as production values. When you combined all that, you just felt like the super Star Trek nerd. Yeah, you know, because like I said, the original compendium, that gave you the episodic guide. But having the the, uh, Scotty's Guide to the Enterprise and stuff, then that puts you – you had that, and that just put you that much into, hey, I'm on the Enterprise. This is where this happened. And in your mindset, because you didn't have the video games, you didn't have the Internet, and it was all in your mindset, and you was, like, looking at the at the uh, schematics and stuff, and you was, you was putting yourself into that scene in your mind at that time. Well, I, I remember another publication in the 80s. It was the Starfleet Medical Book. That's right, and that that was fantastic to go to go along with the um, Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise and and the Compendium. I mean, all those resources together were my most cherished possessions um, because there was so little that you could do to find out about to find out about Star Trek 
back then because, like I said, there was no Internet. There was no other way, you know, other than these publications. Starlog magazine way back then, and it had stuff about him. Man, got every one of them, too, you know. I had to spit, blow my whole allowance on them because they were pretty expensive mags back then. Starlog was our Internet. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, but there's good times, man, good times. Hey, we're going to wrap it up and talk about Starfleet International. What does this organization mean to you? I've been in it since about 1993. So, and it's had its up and downs, but the consistent thing is family. You know, family, and it's not just your normal family. It's like my brother sitting here beside me that we're talking with. That's my family. We've, we've always been families. We've had our ups and downs and our disagreements, but we're family at the end of it all. And between the family and the joining together as, as, as this, we're in our summit right now where a lot of the ships join together and just meeting everybody, that is the main thing, along with working together to help the world be more of a place that Gene Roddenberry envisioned at that time. I want to second Anthony's comments. That it is like uh, an extended family. Uh, he and I are basically brothers. I joined in '93 as well, so I've been around quite a while. It's coming up on our 30th year, actually. Yes. So, um, and it, it, honestly, I've met so many nice people, great people, developed friendships, camaraderie. Um, yes, at times it's a dysfunctional family, but where where does that not happen? Um, but we all get together to work toward a common goal to promote the ideals of Star Trek which, you know, a better future for mankind. It's just all the friends that I've made and all the people that I've met, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. In closing, if you were to meet Alan Asherman and you were able to express your feelings about the compendium, what would you say to him? I would say that with his compendium, he started me on a life that is truly immeasurable. I mean, a joy that is truly immeasurable. And it started with all of that compendium and reading all of those episodes and, you know, it taking a place in my mind at that time. And it just, it's, it's grown from them. He introduced me to a whole world that, that I'm thankful for being. I would shake his hand because his publication really, um, set me upon a road to meet many fine people and, to watch uh, an absolutely fine show through its different iterations, you know, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, uh, Voyager, and of course Enterprise, and the things that have come since then. It's it's been a tremendous journey, and um, he helped me. You know, I I'd seen the series, and I didn't realize what a huge impact it had on people's lives, myself included. And I would just shake the man's hand, say thank you. This is the slightly hoarse voice of Preston Neal Jones, uh, author of Return to Tomorrow, the filming of Star Trek, the motion picture. Actually, you might say this book has 60 authors because it's an oral history based on 60 interviews I conducted while the film was still in production and shortly uh, after it was released back in 1979-1980 with uh, members of the cast and crew, all the original uh, 
members of the, the uh, crew on the Enterprise, uh, Mr. Shatner, Mr. Nimoy, uh, Mr. Kelly, uh, etc., and uh, the director, uh, the producer, Mr. Roddenberry, uh, and uh, all the uh, all the major crafts are represented. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, someone's been kind enough to point out that uh, no other book uh, has really uh, examined the, the, the how a movie is made from beginning to end in this much detail. Uh, it's uh, 655 pages, uh, but most of the words, as I say, are the interviewees, not mine. The particular format I've used uh, is not the setup of questions and answers with these people. Uh, I create what I'd like to call a montage of memories. In other words, I asked a lot of questions, and they gave a lot of answers, and then I eliminated my questions and uh, edited their answers chronologically, uh, telling the whole story. So in other words, it's as if you're sitting in on a round-robin discussion with 60 people who together made Star Trek The Motion Picture. I wrote a similar book a few years ago about the film The Night of the Hunter called Heaven and Hell to Play With, and I used the same format. I interviewed a dozen people there uh, because the film had been made so many years before, but uh, because this one was made, uh, this research was conducted in the heat of battle, uh, I ended up with uh, 60 uh, interviews all told. Uh, and there's a story, really, as to how it came to be as many as 60. Uh, I'm to go into this story in the introduction to my book, which I may as well say it now, uh, as a, is uh, Introduction or Confession of a Non-Trekker. You see, I've always been a lover of film and fantasy and science fiction, but for no particular reason, I just never happened to have paid too much attention to Star Trek when it was on television the first time or even in reruns. I was certainly aware of it, weren't we all? Um, but um, I uh, did uh, end up in its orbit because of a magazine called Cinefantastique, the late lamented magazine edited by a gentleman named Fred Clark. Uh, back in uh, the uh, late 70s, uh, when Star Trek and Close Encounters were bursting onto the screen, Fred had devoted special double issues to each of those two pictures. Uh, it can, each issue consisted of interviews with 20 participants in the film, cast and crew, uh, and uh, extra pages, as is implied by what I was saying, uh, as, in the, in, as a special issue, uh, were extensive, were, were increased. Uh, comes 1979... And, uh, oh, I should mention that uh, I had uh, written for the magazine. Uh, Here's where my fantasy uh, and uh, horror film uh, background comes in. Uh, Fred published an interview I conducted with Hans J. Salter, the man who wrote so much wonderful music for the Universal Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, and Mummy pictures. It was a special double wraparound cover issue of the magazine, 
I called my article The Ghost of Hans J. Salter, and it was printed in 1978. So as I say, a year later, uh, Fred uh, called me up, and apparently uh, there had been a falling out between, I'm just guessing now, between him and the fellow who had written those other two special issues, because he said, uh, how would you like to do the special issue we're going to do on Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is going to come out at the end of this year. Well, I thought to myself, hmm, I'll get to talk to Robert Wise. I'll get to talk to Jerry Goldsmith. I'll get to talk to Isaac Asimov. Yeah, sure, I said, I'd love to. Now, as a non-trekker, I felt it was my duty to uh, try and find out from people who were trekkers what they would want to see in any piece I would write about Star Trek, the motion picture. So I asked my friends who were truckers, uh, you're the people I'm going to be writing this for, so what do you think I should be sure to put in? And they all gave me the same answer. They said, detail, minutia, spare us nothing for fear it will be too trivial. So that's one reason why we ended up with 665 pages. Uh, but uh, also, it was simply a matter of uh, Fred being such an enthusiast for Star Trek that, uh, as I sent him interviews, he got uh, very excited about uh, the material that I was uh, bringing in. And he said, oh, great, can you interview more people? No, no, can you? he was always saying, interview more people. So that's why I ended up interviewing three times as many people as the previous special issues uh, had uh, contained. One of the friends uh, I spoke to told me about, uh, well, I asked uh, my friend Lucy Chase Williams, author of an excellent book, The Complete Films of Vincent Price, uh, around when I was about to be interviewing DeForest Kelly. I said, uh, I'm going to be talking to DeForest Kelly. Is there anything that you would like me to ask him? And she said, yes, ask him about uh, what's going on with that ring that he always wore. And I'm thinking to myself, the ring? How, who notices a ring on an actor's hand on a small television screen? That's what I knew that uh, what people who said detail and minutia were giving me uh, the straight dope. And sure enough, I uh, interviewed DeForest Kelly, and when I asked him about the ring, he said, you know, more people have asked me about that ring. So, as a matter of fact, there was a very interesting story he told me about that involving uh, his late mother and uh, the ring being lost and then found and then lost again. Uh, it's in the book, and I, it gave me the key to dedicating uh, the book because um, I wanted to dedicate it to my mother who had passed away while I was working on the book. My book is, the dedication reads, To the Lost Diamond. Now, my interview with Mr. Kelly was uh, uh, conducted at uh, Paramount Studios. I interviewed uh, Mr. Nimoy on the phone. I interviewed uh, Mr. Shatner uh, at uh, lunch uh, at his favorite restaurant in uh, the Valley. Uh, it was a lovely little place, and uh, we, uh, with my little uh, 
cassette recorder going on the table. We had a conversation over the meal. And uh, then at some point, uh, the waiter came over and said, uh, would you uh, like some dessert? And uh, Mr. Shatner looked at me and said, do you like chocolate? And I confessed that I did. And so he looked at the waiter and said, you know what to bring. And the very knowing look from the waiter as he uh, went on in his way. Now, remember, in, in, excuse me, in preparation uh, for this picture, the actors had to get back in a camera shape uh, since it had been 10 years since uh, they had last been seen in their Star Trek uniforms. And Mr. Shatner had gone through a very serious, very successful regimen of uh, healthy eating and exercise uh, to get in shape for the film. At this point, uh, he was no longer shooting the film. They were working on special effects, but he still uh, had to be looking his best for all the interviews. Uh, so uh, the waiter showed up with this massive plate. I've never seen anything before it or since of liquefied chocolate, white chocolate and milk chocolate. Uh, and uh, it was a stupendous uh, concoction. And uh, while we continued talking, Mr. Shatner picked up his fork and dipped it into the dessert and helped himself to a taste of the forbidden uh, non-dietary dessert. As I said, I talked to uh, Mr. Roddenberry. I also talked to the, quote, executive in charge of production, unquote. Uh, that interview was arranged for me by Richard Urisich, one of the FX people. And uh, he was with me uh, waiting to go in for the interview that uh, late afternoon and uh, Richard said to me pay attention to whatever this guy tells you Preston someday he's going to be running the studio as many of you know that executive was Jeffrey Katzberg Katzenberg so uh, Richard knew uh, what he was talking about uh, interestingly of all the 60 interviews Mr. Katzenberg was the only one who did not want to be tape recorded I had to jot through uh, take notes uh, furiously while he was talking rush all and uh, put as much of it down uh, as I could from memory. This film, Mr. Katzenberg said, had more trouble than mo all pictures, he said, had terrible troubles. This one had much more trouble even than that. Uh, it all boils down to uh, a uh, one, two, three punch. The, uh, in other words, uh, mistakes that the studio made. The first mistake, which was most key was that the studio cut a deal with the exhibitors promising them that for the money that the exhibitors were going to provide that they would have a Star Trek movie to show in their theaters on December 7th, 1979. If they didn't make that date, they were going to lose all of that money, millions and millions of dollars. Consequently, they rushed into production without a finished script. That was uh, the uh, the third uh, punch. Uh, the uh, second punch, obviously not in chronological order, uh, but getting back to the very beginning of the uh, production, uh, the pre-production, Paramount hired a special effects team that had uh, produced award-winning uh, commercials uh, for television, but had never done a feature film before. 
And after, a, you know, this was like a two-year process from starting uh, production to when uh, the release date was coming up in 79. One year in, uh, when uh, Robert Wise and Gene Roddenberry insisted that the uh, uh, rather uh, secretive uh, head of that effects team show him what he'd been uh, producing with his team, they just they were just uh, so upset with what they saw or didn't see on the screen in that screening room that day uh, that they were furious and. Um, uh, that they had to fire that effects team and hire two special effects teams to do two years worth of work in one year's time. That's why they hired John Dykstra of Star Wars fame and Douglas Trumbull uh, of uh, 2001 and the Close Encounters fame. They each had their own separate facility, their own separate crews, and these crews were working round the clock. Uh, they would put some of them up in hotels or have them sleep in cuts just so they could keep on working. As for that unfinished script, as you can imagine, it had to be rewritten on the fly all all during the production of the principal photography. If you've ever seen a uh, film script uh, that's been sh- of a film that's been shot, you'll know that when a page uh, or a scene is revised, they put that revision in colored paper, and on the top corner they put the date of that revision. The Star Trek script, by the time they were finished, had so many revisions in it, it looked like a rainbow. And they were doing revisions. They were doing revisions of their revisions. Some pages that I saw when I looked at the script didn't just say, this is the date. They gave the time of day on which that revision was handed in. Throughout all of this, uh, Robert Wise uh, was, uh, to me, the hero of uh, the whole saga. I certainly think of him as the hero of my book. Uh, his uh, accomplishments are legendary. Uh, he was one of the most... In fact, he was the first and only director Paramount asked uh, to do the picture. And I honestly think that if any uh, other director of, or a director of any less expertise and uh, humanity as wise had been in charge, they might not have made that December 7th date. It was neck and neck. It was a race to the finish. And when I interviewed Mr. Wise, uh, while they were still uh, working on the effects, I asked him, are you folks going to be able to make the December 7th date? And he paused and he said, just by the skin of our teeth. Well, in the end, uh, that's pretty much the way it turned out. The great Gary Goldsmith, like all film composers, uh, was used to having a finished film uh, to uh, score. But this was uh, the first time that he was scoring a picture while it was still being completed. That meant that often he had to uh, score scenes where uh, (laughs) there was nothing up on the screen uh, or they didn't have all of the shots yet because they were waiting for the effects shots to come in. And sometimes they were having second thoughts on the editing and they would change around the sequence of events and he'd have to go back and rescore it again. In any case, uh, the uh, score was finally, the last note of the score was finally recorded at 2 a.m. on Friday uh, before the week when the film had to open on Thursday, December 6th 
at NASA. That was going to be the gala premiere, and December 7th, the next day, it had to be in theaters. They looked at the answer print um, on, uh, or rather, the very last effects shot, I should say, was sent to the lab on Sunday, December 2nd. And uh, they didn't even complete all the shots that they had hoped to complete, but that was the last shot they could complete by then. Monday, December 3rd, they looked at the answer print, and Mr. Wise carried the film canisters on his plane to Washington, D.C. for the Thursday opening. Jerry Goldsmith told me he had been so exhausted and drained by that uh, adventure. He went on vacation and he said, for three weeks, I was scoring the last reel of the picture in my dreams. Well, comes the uh, evening of the 6th in NASA and... Uh, Mr. Katzenberg told me that uh, when the lights came up after the applause uh, was dying down at the end of the uh, picture, Wise turned to Katzenberg and said, well, not bad for a first sneak preview. The grim joke being, of course, that there could be no sneak previews. Whatever was uh, condition the picture was in, it had to be. That's the way it was going to be seen all around the world the next morning. The late screenwriter Harold Livingston was at that gala premiere, and afterwards uh, Wise went up to him and said, and I'll clean this up a little for podcast uh, purposes, he said to Harold, we were effing lucky. We were effing lucky. That's how close they came to not having a picture, a motion picture. The Cinefantastique special issues for Star Wars and Close Encounters had all come out to coincide with the openings of those pictures. Uh, there was no way we could do that in this case uh, because they were still uh, working on the picture up until the day it uh, opened. And then I was finally able to interview all the special effects people who had been uh, locked in, in lockdown. For various reasons, uh, the... Uh, Issue, uh, the special double issue of, of Cine Fantastique for Star Trek The Motion Picture never happened. It uh, finally saw daylight, as I always hoped it would, uh, in 2014, uh, thanks to Creature Features Publishing. Mr. Wise finally got to do everything that he had not been allowed to do by rushing when the picture was rushed to December 7th. You understand, uh, Wise and Roddenberry had begged the studio, said, please, if you give us just a little more time, we can, we can make this much better a picture. A little more time, we can make a much better picture. But uh, the studio just uh, couldn't... Uh, uh, tolerate losing all those millions of dollars. But finally, uh, with uh, producer David Fine, Wise put together a director's edition where he was able to do what he would have been able to do with sneak previews and etc., recutting, reworking, uh, etc. And uh, as uh, you know, that's uh, uh, finally out uh, on uh, video disc and uh, has been playing in uh, theaters uh, at a few select uh, special evenings. Uh, and uh, it was it's like a, a vindication uh, for Wise. Uh, 
the picture is finally what he hoped it would be. So the best possible version of Star Trek The Motion Picture can now be seen in all its glory. And uh, my book can finally be read. Uh, we sold out uh, the first couple of printings, and, but it is available on Kindle. Uh, so uh, I hope you like it. As always, let's close out by considering one of the advertisements in Starlog. This is taken from the classified section. Stop. Don't build your new AMT Enterprise model until we show you how to max illuminate it. Pulsing LEDs and more. The plans are $3.50. An address is in Buffalo, New York. This might be where your brother ordered his light kit for his model Enterprise. Yeah, he had a model that, well, it came with all the lights already there. Really? Yeah, I think so. That's the way it was. Interesting. I, I wasn't aware of one that included lights. This one, you're able to illuminate. It doesn't even say it comes with the lights. It says you send 350 for the plans. Yeah, I thought that's something that tells you how to add lights to your model, which, which would be neat. Yeah. What was it like seeing your brother's Enterprise light up in the dark? Oh, it was cool. Yeah. I mean, the lights came from, from inside. That's mm-hmm. what made it great, yeah. Yeah, I, I I never had the light. I never had the skill to, to do the lighted version, so I just had the regular model kit. So that's pretty awesome that this was a thing in the early 80s to modify kits to put lights in them. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long, and may the force be with you. Nanu, nanu.